0: This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by the new classic, executive, and bold full-focus planners. Find out more at lead2.win slash planner.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt, and this is Lead to Win, the weekly podcast to help you win at work and succeed at life. And in this episode, I'm going to be answering your questions. Megan Hyatt Miller is on parental leave, spending some much-needed time with her newly adopted daughter, Naomi. She'll be back with us soon. But in the meantime, I've got, as always, Larry Wilson. Hey, Larry. Hey, Michael. How are you?
2: I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to this. I always like answering our listener questions. Marissa, our social media manager, fields them all the time. And we get a lot of them through Instagram. And that's where all these questions today came from. So, hey, guys, if you are not following Michael and Megan on Instagram, you really need to do that right now. You ready to dive in? Uh, we're ready. And, and
1: just, you know, full disclosure here, I have not seen these questions. And so I'm going to be hitting this cold, which I like.
2: Yeah, this will be fun. As always, we get a lot of questions about goals and goal setting. So we have a few of those. I'll, I'll pick one here for you. This is from Andy Kummer, and he writes, Michael, I've been a full-focus planner user, and I love the system. Obviously, you've talked a lot about smarter goals in the past. My question is, how do you create meaningful relationship goals, specifically in terms of marriage, in the smarter format Without having that become a checklist, and I know nobody's spouse wants to be just another item to tick off their list. <laughs> so yeah. how do you navigate that?
1: Well, here's what I would do. I you know, oftentimes these are what I would call aspirations, not goals. For example, you know, I want a closer relationship with God or I want deeper intimacy with my spouse. So the question to ask yourself is not how do you turn that into an achievement goal, because I don't frankly know, but how could I reduce it to a habit or a practice that if I did consistently would create the context for creating deeper intimacy? So it's not that the habit becomes an end in itself, and I'm going to give you a concrete example here in a minute, but it provides the context where it can happen. So for me, when I was trying to to figure out how to develop deeper intimacy and get closer with Gail, and we've been married 41 years, so i you know, I want to preserve this relationship, I instituted a simple habit goal of a weekly date night. So on Thursday night at 6 p.m., we go on a date. We did it last night. We're recording this on a Friday. We did it last night. I was telling you guys before we got on, we went to this awesome restaurant in East Nashville. And, you know, that habit of observing that doesn't guarantee that I'm going to, you know, develop greater intimacy. We could just sit there and stare at each other or be in our, have our heads in our smartphones over dinner and it wouldn't do us any good. But it's created the context where we can deepen our relationship if we take advantage of it. The first step for us is just, you know, setting aside the time for ourselves and then using that time to get to know each other in a deeper way. So one of the cool things that happens for us is that I, I kind of delegated this out to my assistant, Jim, and I said, Jim, <laughs> two things. I want you to make reservations at a restaurant that you think we will enjoy. Keep it interesting so that I don't have to you know have the excuse of I forgot to schedule that time. And I said, if you could come up with a couple questions that we could ask each other, you know, that'd be cool too, because, you know, the real value in that time together is getting to ask the question and more particularly hearing the answer of the other person. Yeah. So Gail and I had an amazing conversation last night. I mean, We talked for two hours over a great dinner and we do that, you know, every Thursday. And it's just a little habit goal that now has become very much a habit that we wouldn't think of missing. So it's very rare for us to miss Thursday date night, but that's how you turn an aspiration into a meaningful practice that gives you a sense of progress.
2: Does Gail know that you're not making the reservation or writing those questions?
1: Yep, she does. I've confessed it all to her. And I I remember the first time um, I had an anniversary dinner with her, not a date night dinner, but an anniversary dinner. So it was like even more special. You know, like we dressed up, we went to a restaurant that was more expensive. It was a bigger deal. Jim came up with a list of 10 anniversary questions for us to talk through. And so I went through these questions. I mean, some of them, Made Gail tear up. She was like moved emotionally. And, and I felt at the end of it, she said, honey, those, those questions were amazing. She said, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to ask me these questions. So then I felt a little guilty. So then I had to confess. I said, well, actually, Jim came up with that list. And she said, well, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you know, she figures like that kind of stuff. I've delegated to Jim. I still get points for it. So The fact that I delegated
2: it is good. Andy, here's something to take away from that is that your spouse may not mind being an item on your to-do list as long as you check it off. Okay. If you get it accomplished, paying attention and building the relationship, the system for getting there doesn't matter so much.
1: Well, and I think it's like any kind of practice, that becomes a habit. It can be mindless, and we can leave our heart out of it. And I mean, I don't care if it's going to church or if it's spending time with your kids or spending time with your spouse— you know, you can set it to practice, but you got to
2: bring your heart to it. Well, our next question comes from Jordan Brittley. And Jordan, I hope I'm saying your last name properly. And she asks this How do you set a goal for your business revenue? What steps do you then mentally take to adjust it and hit it? Now, she voices this concern. She wants to stay focused on revenue goals. But she says, I don't want a revenue goal to run my life. So the first thing I would do is I would look
1: at the revenue that you did for the prior year. So you got to have a baseline. And now you're going to want to make an improvement, right? And so we recommend in the smarter system, the R stands for risky. You want your goal to be in the discomfort zone. Uh, It can't be something that's a slam dunk. It has to be something that forces innovation. And I would say you've got to answer the question, why is it important? Because you don't just want revenue growth for growth sake. Uh, there's got to be a reason behind it. So this is where we talk about fleshing out the goal and identifying your key motivations. Why is that important? Why is that revenue growth important? You know, maybe it's going to be because it's going to enable you to fund some other new initiative that's critically important. Or maybe it's going to allow you to implement a benefit for your employees that you know would be meaningful to them. Maybe it's going to enable you to retain them by implementing the benefit. You can like peel the onion on this and go a lot of different levels deep in terms of asking why is it important. But I think that is important. I'll never forget that I was at a conference one time with Amy Porterfield and we had both come off a very, very big year. And um, she said, well, when is enough enough? I mean, why is continued revenue growth important to you? And it was a great question. And I said, I'm going to tell you why it's important to me. It's important to me to continue to grow as a person. And when I'm growing my company, it's going to require a different version of me to sh- show up this next year than was in place this last year. So that's one of the reasons I like growth. Just one reason among many, but identify your why. That's the key.
2: Well, let's move to the subject of leadership, which we're all about here on Lead to Win, and we've got a few questions on leadership. This one is from Sprout Marketing on Instagram, and they write, I'd love to know how you transition as a leader as your company scales. At the beginning, you interact with everyone, and you know a lot about each individual. But as you scale and as you add remote employees, it becomes more difficult. How do you keep a personal connection as those one-on-one interactions become less frequent?
1: Yeah. Well, I think you got to realize, you know, you got to face the fact that it's not going to be possible. There's only so much of you that can go around. I mean, we're facing this in our company now. We have 40 people. And there are some times when I'll bump into somebody that I haven't seen for a while and I kind of have to jog my memory to remember their name. And that's just normal. What is important is that you segment who needs access to you and who you're going to know, who you have to know more intimately. So for me, I make myself available to the executive team in a way that I don't make myself available to every employee in the company. I mean, that's just natural. If you want to get, you know, spiritual about it, if you look at Jesus, he gave more time of his time to the to the disciples. And even within the 12 disciples, there were three that he spent more time with than the other, you know, uh, nine couldn't do the math there for a second, but the other nine. And so, um, so I think this is important to realize and it's okay, but I just think you need to be deliberate and intentional about it. So who needs the most access to you? Why do they need access to you? And how are you going to spend your time with them? So we do this kind of with our natural meeting rhythms. So I, I spend time one on one with my direct reports every week. I spend time with the executive team every other week. I spend time with the leadership team, which is a little bit broader than the executive team, every other week, and then with all the employees every month. So those are regular, formal times. That doesn't count you know, bumping into people at the office, but that's regular, formal times. So I would just recommend being intentional about it.
2: Another question on leadership, this one from Tom Tonkin. And he makes a comment first about the fact that here on Lead to Win... We address what he calls organizational leaders or positional leaders, people who are in positions of business leadership, CEOs and so on, business owners and so on. And he brings up the fact that there's also this other definition of leadership, which is leadership as influence. And so the question is, what's your definition of leadership?
1: Well, hopefully leadership is not either or. You know, there are people that have positions of leadership who don't have a lot of influence because they think the position is the leadership. There are people who have influence, who don't have a position in leadership, who are enormously influential and are exerting their leadership just through whatever means uh, is at hand. So I, I actually have a five-fold definition. I've written an article on this. I won't go, go through it here, but I think you can. You, we'll have a link in the show notes. But you can look on my blog for the five marks of leadership. And uh, one of them is influence. I don't think it's the only one. I think that, for example, initiative is a mark of leadership. Leaders go first. Leaders take initiative. Leaders have impact. And again, there's five of those. But influence is definitely one of the big ones. I love the definition of influence. It comes from the same root word as influenza. It's a good thing because you want to be contagious as a leader. You want to be able to spread your ideas, spread your impact, and all that comes through influence. And so I, I would say that, you know, John Maxwell says that influence is everything. I don't think it's everything, but I do think it's the most important part of leadership.
2: That's a great answer. And that leads us to another kind of a subcategory of leadership, which is leading up. So mm. being an influential leader, even if you're not the positional leader yeah. in your organization or your company. And this one is from Katie Eckelman, And she says, I'm a lower level employee, But I have a few ideas on goal strategy for my company, thanks to listening to your podcast. So, well, we're reaching somewhat. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. What is the best way to approach this topic with upper management? You know,
1: one of the things that we've talked about on a prior episode, and I can't remember which one, so we can get a a link in the show notes, but it's basically the idea of how to sell your boss. And the best way to sell anyone on anything, but especially your boss, is to ask yourself the question, what's in it for them? So how can I sell this in a way that helps them get more of what they want? So in other words, if you're trying to sell a goal-setting methodology, you've got to explain to them how doing this is going to help them accomplish their goals and get the results they want. Nobody cares about what you're interested in, I mean, I hate to say it, as much as they care about what they're interested in. So if you can frame it in terms of that, you can make the sale.
2: Heather Button has another question about leading up. What happens when HR isn't leading effectively? Now, she used HR, human resources, as an example. I think we could probably substitute any department or function in a company. What do you do when this area of the company really isn't functioning as it should be.
1: Now, do you think she's talking about in the context of somebody who's presiding over or leading that area of the company
2: that's not functioning? Or is she talking about I don't think that's what she's saying, but you could you could split the question and direct it on two fronts.
1: Okay, so let me just talk about let's just say that it's a peer. Like let's say that that you're running some division or some department of your company and you really need HR to step up in a big way because maybe you've got some hiring aspirations and they're just not helping you. So what do you do with that? Well, here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't go complain to my boss. I would go have a sit down, face-to-face, adult conversation with that person first. That's how I would want to be treated. You know, I would. I don't want somebody going and tattling to my boss I'd appreciate if they would do me the honor of coming directly to me and speaking face to face and telling me where I'm not hitting the mark. Because I think most people want to do a better job. They want to know that they're meeting the needs of the people that they're in the organization to serve. And if HR is not meeting your needs, tell them, you know, tell them what your expectations are, see if they can, and just, and just ask them the question, do you think this is something you could do? Now, if you have a disagreement or they say, you know what, that's not something we do. Well, I, I need that from you. Well, that's not something we do. Okay, now I can go have a conversation with my boss because now we've got a disagreement. Now we need to have somebody help us get aligned because they have one set of expectations, I have another. But don't jump to that until you've had an opportunity to see if the person could self-correct. Now, if the person is working for you, in other words, they're running a department of your division, let's say, or they're running a division within your company and they're just not measuring up to your expectations, then you have to ask yourself the question, what is it about your leadership that's leading to that result? So in other words, maybe I've not made clear my expectations to that department head or that division head, and I need to start there. Do we have a misalignment of expectations because I've not been explicit in what I expect? Maybe I've not put into place performance criteria. Maybe I've got the wrong person in place. But the key thing is you've got to confront it. If you've got a performance issue, if somebody's not meeting your expectations, you've got to give them the opportunity to course correct, and you've got to bring it to their attention. They can't read your mind. We've said that a thousand times in the show. They can't read your mind. You've got to be explicit.
0: Hey everyone, it's Nick Jaworski, and I'm the producer for Lead to Win, and I've got two quick things that I want to cover with you. The first thing is, I'm the producer of Lead to Win, and my job is to make this show as useful as possible for you, the listener, and I don't know if you remember, but all of the questions on today's episode came directly from Instagram, so if you want the chance to have your question answered by Michael or Megan, then you need to go to Instagram, and follow Michael, that's at Michael Hyatt And Megan, that's at Megan Hyatt Miller So, at Michael Hyatt and at Megan Hyatt Miller Now, sometimes they'll answer questions just in real time on Instagram And other times we save the questions so that we can share it with everybody here on the podcast So, make sure you're following them on Instagram so that you can help us make the best show possible Also, we have another podcast you may have already heard about it But I'm telling you again that if you're not subscribed, you need to go It's called Focus on This. It's hosted by Courtney Baker and Blake Stratton. It's like a morning drive time show, uh, but it's about productivity. (laughs) People talking about their planners and their big three and how they're productive. So go to Apple Podcasts, to Spotify, to Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, and subscribe to Focus on This because we promise that it will get you loving Mondays again. Okay, let's get back to more of your questions. You recently launched a book,
2: Your World Class Assistant, which is about hiring and leveraging an executive assistant. And Chad Ingalls has a question about assistants and delegation. He says, I've followed you for a long time, even back when you were a one-man show. And sitting here doing this podcast with Nick, our producer, and with the various people that I know are involved in this, it's hard to believe you did this as a one-man show. Man, I I can't (laughs) believe it either. I mean, I was crazy.
1: By the way, if I had to do it all over again, I would have gotten to this place faster because it
2: would have freed me up to do the other things that generated income. Let's get to Chad's question. As your brand grew, what specific tasks did you delegate to virtual and in-person assistants? Okay, so I have followed
1: the advice of Dawson Trotman, whom I've quoted here many times, but I want to quote it again because it's very appropriate for this question. Never do anything that others can or will do when there's so much of importance to be done that others cannot or will not do. So the question I've always asked myself, is this task that I'm doing something that somebody else can do or will do? You know, in other words, I want to be focused on the things that I am uniquely qualified or uniquely talented to do and stay focused on those areas. Now, that's a journey. You know, where I'm at today, where I'm really focused on three main areas of expertise, that's a journey. I couldn't always do that. I mean, as he points out, I was a one-man band where I had to do everything. And a lot of those things were in what we call now my drudgery zone. They were things that I didn't have any passion for, didn't have any proficiency for, but they had to be done. So as soon as I could, I delegated those things. Well, actually, I either eliminated, automated, or delegated them. But um, I think it's, it's key to stay focused, or at least to know, even if you have to do other tasks, it's key to know what you're uniquely qualified to do and move as quickly as you can to where you're doing predominantly
2: those things. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think what you're saying is the task will vary by person. That's right. That you hand off to your assistant. There may be some that are very common, but uh, it just depends on your abilities and where you find leverage in your work. That's right. Well, let's go back to where it all started and talk about productivity. Okay. My favorite topic. Kim Metzler says this, I am addicted to all things productivity. And Kim we know exactly how you feel. (laughs) (laughs) We're total addicts. We are total addicts as well. But she adds this, I struggle with organization. She says, I would love to hear more systems, processes, and hacks for those of us who struggle in this way. Here's the best hack. Find somebody that doesn't struggle with it
1: and employ them. (laughs) I mean, seriously, you know, you don't have to be great at everything. And endlessly organizing things, probably your clients aren't going to pay you for that. They're not going to see whether your file cabinet's a mess or not. They may feel the effects of it, but why not hire that? You know, I know not everybody can, but you don't have to be good at anything. And I think this is the myth that, frankly, works against our productivity.
2: And the sooner that we can realize that, the faster we can become truly productive. Our next question is from Belinda, and she asks how do you determine if a project is worth your time? In other words, how do you let go of a project? Ah,
1: well, this is the value of setting goals because when you set goals, you know where your primary focus needs to be. The problem is most people don't know where to focus. They don't know what demands their attention, what to say no to because they haven't identified what really should command their attention. So this is why we advocate setting uh, two to three goals per quarter two to three priorities per week in your daily big three and what falls outside the scope of those things are candidates for elimination
2: well here's a question on employment and this comes from d and he says how do i land a job it's been six years since my first job wow well i'm sorry that sounds challenging i'm not an
1: employment expert but the first thing I would do is buy the book by Dan Miller called 48 Days to the Work You Love, because Dan will help you think through this topic and hopefully give you some creative ideas on how to seek employment. But the first place, and this this, this is easy for me to say, because I'm not in that position, so it may look easier than it really is, but I would start looking at my mindset. I I, I think if you have the expectation that if you go into that next interview or make the effort to contact that next employer and you're already defeated before you start and have the expectation that you're not going to be hired or aren't going to get the interview, I think you telegraph that in ways that you probably are not aware of, that unconsciously you're telegraphing that you don't expect to be interviewed. And, and I've, I've heard people, it kind of shows up in their language sometimes. Mm. Like when somebody says, well, you probably wouldn't want to hire a person like me. Uh, yeah, You know, or, or they think to themselves, they have this limiting belief where they, they think uh, I'm overqualified or maybe in this situation, I haven't held a job in six years who would hire somebody like me. So I think you've got to spin that around and take those limiting beliefs and turn them into liberating truths. And I explain how to do this in my book, your best year ever, but I think you got to get the mindset right first. And then I would I I would say and this is just getting random advice, but I would approach it almost like I'd approach sales. And one of the things I know about sales is that fundamentally it's a numbers game. In other words, if I get in enough in front of enough prospects, I'm going to make the sale eventually. You know, even if somebody just randomly says yes when maybe they should say no, if I get enough in front of enough people, I'm going to get the sale. So, I would do everything I could to get my resume to get in front of people you know, network with your friends, all of that. But again, I'd start with Dan
2: Miller's book. Now, this question comes from Greg Brown, and he says, how do you balance your focus on the controllables and the uncontrollables? And what he's getting at there is the things you can control, which is what you do, and the results, which you can't often control. Yeah, well, I try to focus on
1: what I can control. So for example, to kind of go back to that previous example of making sales calls in an employment context, Mm -hmm. I can't control whether an employer says yes or no, but I can control how many resumes I send out. I can control how many networking functions I attend, how I show up for an interview. You know, I can take control of my mindset. I can take control of my appearance you know, again, take control of what you take control over. And there is a sense in which we have to, you know, leave the results with God and focus on what we can control. I don't I don't disagree with that philosophy. The problem is we usually have more control than we think, right? So if I don't make the phone calls, if I don't get out of bed in the morning, you know, I can't blame that on God because the results don't happen.
2: Is there a sense in which the results, though, have to inform what you're doing? That the results... If you're consistently getting good results, that must tell you that something's working. Or if you're not getting good results, then you go back and adjust what you're doing. So the results, you have to pay some attention there. Totally. They do
1: matter. Like if I was in a sales situation and I was consistently getting no's, I would have to ask the question, you know, is is it a matter of my lack of persuasion? Maybe the product's not quite right. Maybe the fit's not quite right. So absolutely, I would be taking in the feedback uh, or the input that I was getting after every one of those calls and and adjusting. You know, what is it that's keeping me from making the sale? You might even ask the person who's saying no. You know, hmm. what is it that uh kept me from getting this job?
2: Wow. Uh, that's a risky question.
1: Well I I'll give you a concrete example. When I was trying to sell my first book, I had twenty nine publishers in a row send me a rejection letter. Wow. And most of them didn't didn't give me a lot of information, but a few did. And so I asked them specifically, what is it that made you say no? And that gave me hugely helpful data. Now, it took me 29 times before I got a yes, Mm -hmm. but it was totally worth it. And each time I learned, and that helped me progress and incrementally improve the proposal until I finally got the yes.
2: Well, let's go for our last question to Kevin Gomez. And Kevin says, I'm currently in a growth plan for leadership, and I feel I'm out learning my supervisors and leaders in regard to leadership and managing people. What do you recommend I do? Uh, Congratulations. You're normal.
1: I mean, I think anybody that's committed to personal development is going to feel that. I mean, honestly, I mean, Larry, I'll ask you this don't you often feel like, I mean, not in your current situation, but you often feel like, you know, I'm working for somebody that doesn't know as much about this as I know.
2: I have often in the past really felt that. Frankly, not since I took this job, but give me time. Yeah. (laughs) Joel, your boss, watch out.
1: No, I mean, I've, I've felt that way so many times. And that's just normal. And I think you have to have the humility to realize that they probably know some things that maybe you're not giving them credit for, or maybe know some things that you haven't seen yet. But it doesn't matter. You know, they're in a position of authority. You know, they're they're worthy of your respect regardless of whether you know more. But I mean, the truth is, we all know lots of smart people that aren't very successful at life hmm. because knowledge doesn't always correlate with success. So what really does correlate with success is can you take that knowledge and translate it into behavior that leads to results? Because results, if you can translate it into results, that's going to get you promoted and eventually... Those people that you think now are knuckleheads, they may be working for you, or you may be in a position to let them go, and that has happened to me in the past.
2: Well, thank you, Michael, for answering these questions, and I feel like these episodes are really uh, like the Talmud. I mean, you have <laughs> you have <How> the, so <laughs> you have the law, you have the body of knowledge that we teach. So we have our books, and we have the podcast, and the things that we put out in the world, but. This is a chance to give some commentary on that in real-life situations that people wonder about. So Hmm. I think it's very helpful for our listeners. I know I gain from every time that we do this. So thanks for your input today.
1: Thank you, Larry, and thank you guys for listening to us. Until next time, lead to win.
2: You don't like that answer? No, I do. I'm thinking ahead to the best questions here. Well, give me a response, we're getting man! Come to... on, yeah. Give me something. Yeah, I will.
0: <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, that's your best answer yet. <laughs> that's the best. incredible answer, Michael. Yeah, I like that. This episode of Lead to Win has been brought to you by the New Classic Executive and Bold Full Focus Planners. Find out more at Lead 2win Planner.